This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R. Francis Smith of Sturgeon's Law, www.sturgeonslaw.com. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, translated by Richard Crawley. Chapter 9. Fourth and Fifth Years of the War, Revolt of Mytilene. The next summer, just as the corn was getting ripe, the Peloponnesians and their allies invaded Attica under the command of Archidamus, son of Zeuxidamus, king of the Lacedaemonians, and sat down and ravaged the land, the Athenian horse as usual attacking them wherever it was practicable, and preventing the mass of the light troops from advancing from their camp and wasting the parts near the city. After staying the time for which they had taken provisions, the invaders retired and dispersed to their several cities. Immediately after the invasion of the Peloponnesians, all Lesbos, except Methymna, revolted from the Athenians. The Lesbians had wished to revolt even before the war, but the Lacedaemonians would not receive them, and yet now when they did revolt, they were compelled to do so sooner than they had intended. While they were waiting until the moles for their harbors and the ships and walls that they had in building should be finished, and for the arrival of archers and corn and other things that they were engaged in fetching from the Pontus, the Tenedians, with whom they were at enmity, and the Methymnians, and some factious persons in Mytilene itself, who were proxeny of Athens, informed the Athenians that the Mytilenians were forcibly uniting the island under their sovereignty, and that the preparations about which they were so active were all concerted with the Boeotians, their kindred, and the Lacedaemonians with a view to a revolt, and that, unless they were immediately prevented, Athens would lose Lesbos. However, the Athenians, distressed by the plague, and by the war that had recently broken out and was now raging, thought it a serious matter to add Lesbos with its fleet and untouched resources to the list of their enemies, and at first would not believe the charge, giving too much weight to their wish that it might not be true. But when an embassy which they sent had failed to persuade the Mytilenians to give up the union and preparations complained of, they became alarmed and resolved to strike the first blow. They accordingly suddenly set off forty ships that had been got ready to sail round Peloponnese, under the command of Cleopides, son of Dionysus, and two others. Word having been brought them of a festival in honor of the Malian Apollo outside the town, which is kept by the whole people of Mytilene, and at which, if haste were made, they might hope to take them by surprise. If this plan succeeded, well and good. If not, they were to order the Mytilenians to deliver up their ships and pull down their walls, and if they did not obey, to declare war. The ships accordingly set out. The ten galleys, forming the contingent of the Mytilenians present with the fleet according to the terms of the alliance, being detained by the Athenians, and their crews placed in custody. However, the Mytilenians were informed of the expedition by a man who crossed from Athens to Euboea, and going overland to Gerestus, sailed from thence by a merchantman which he found on the point of putting to sea, and so arrived at Mytilene the third day after leaving Athens. The Mytilenians accordingly refrained from going out to the temple at Malia, and moreover barricaded and kept guard round the half-finished parts of their walls and harbors. When the Athenians sailed in not long after, and saw how things stood, the generals delivered their orders, and upon the Mytilenians refusing to obey, commenced hostilities. The Mytilenians, thus compelled to go to war without notice and unprepared, at first sailed out with their fleet and made some show of fighting, a little in front of the harbor, but being driven back by the Athenian ships, immediately offered to treat with the commanders, wishing, if possible, to get the ships away for the present upon any tolerable terms. The Athenian commanders accepted their offers, being themselves fearful that they might not be able to cope with the whole of Lesbos, and an armistice having been concluded, the Mytilenians sent to Athens one of the informers, already repentant of his conduct, and others with him, to try to persuade the Athenians of the innocence of their intentions, and to get the fleet recalled. In the meantime, having no great hope of a favorable answer from Athens, they also sent off a galley with envoys to Lacedaemon, 
unobserved by the Athenian fleet which was anchored at Malia to the north of the town. While these envoys, reaching Lacedaemon after a difficult journey across the open sea, were negotiating for succors being sent them, the ambassadors from Athens returned without having effected anything, and hostilities were at once begun by the Mytilenians and the rest of Lesbos, with the exception of the Methymnians, who came to the aid of the Athenians with the Imbrians and Lemnians and some few of the other allies. The Mytilenians made a sortie with all their forces against the Athenian camp, and a battle ensued in which they gained some slight advantage, but retired notwithstanding, not feeling sufficient confidence in themselves to spend the night upon the field. After this they kept quiet, wishing to wait for the chance of reinforcements arriving from Peloponnese before making a second venture, being encouraged by the arrival of Melias, a Laconian, and Hermaeondas, a Theban, who had been sent off before the insurrection, but had been unable to reach Lesbos before the Athenian expedition, and who now stole in in a galley after the battle, and advised them to send another galley and envoys back with them, which the Mytilenians accordingly did. Meanwhile the Athenians, greatly encouraged by the inaction of the Mytilenians, summoned allies to their aid, who came in all the quicker from seeing so little vigor displayed by the lesbians, and bringing round their ships to a new station to the south of the town, fortified two camps, one on each side of the city, and instituted a blockade of both the harbors. The sea was thus closed against the Mytilenians, who, however, commanded the whole country, with the rest of the lesbians who had now joined them, the Athenians only holding a limited area around their camps, and using Malia more as the station for their ships and their market. While the war went on in this way at Mytilene, the Athenians, about the same time in this summer, also sent thirty ships to Peloponnese under Esopius, son of Formio, the Acarnanians insisting that the commander sent should be some son or relative of Formio. As the ships coasted along shore, they ravaged the seaboard of Laconia, after which Asopius sent most of the fleet home, and himself went on with twelve vessels to Naupactus, and afterwards, raising the whole Acarnanian population, made an expedition against Oniade, the fleet sailing along the Acolos, while the army laid waste to the country. The inhabitants, however, showing no signs of submitting, he dismissed the land forces, and himself sailed to Lucas, and making a descent upon Nericus, was cut off during his retreat, and most of his troops with him, by the people in those parts aided by some coast guards, after which the Athenians sailed away, recovering their dead from the Leucadians under truce. Meanwhile the envoys of the Mytilenians, sent out in the first ship, were told by the Lacedaemonians to come to Olympia, in order that the rest of the allies might hear them and decide upon their matter, and so they journeyed thither. It was the Olympiad in which the Rhodian Dureus gained his second victory, and the envoys having been introduced to make their speech after the festival spoke as follows. Lacedaemonians and allies, the rule established among the Hellenists is not unknown to us. Those who revolt in war and forsake their former confederacy are favorably regarded by those who receive them, in so far as they are of use to them, but otherwise are thought less well of, through being considered traitors to their former friends. Nor is this an unfair way of judging, where the rebels and the power from whom they secede are at one in policy and sympathy, and a match for each other in resources and power, and where no reasonable ground exists for the rebellion. But with us and the Athenians this was not the case, and no one need think the worse of us from revolting from them in danger, after having been honored by them in time of peace. Justice and honesty will be the first topics of our speech, especially as we are asking for alliance, because we know that there can never be any solid friendship between individuals or union between communities that is worth the name, unless the parties be persuaded of each other's honesty and be generally congenial the one to the other, since from difference in feeling springs also difference in conduct. Between ourselves and the Athenians, alliance began when you withdrew from the Median War and they remained to finish the business. But we did not become allies of the Athenians for the subjugation of the Hellenists, but allies of the Hellenists for their liberation from the Mede. And as long as the Athenians led us fairly, we followed them loyally. But when we saw them relax their hostility to the Mede, to try to compass the subjection of the allies, then our apprehensions began. 
Unable, however, to unite and defend themselves, on account of the number of confederates that had votes, all the allies were enslaved except ourselves and the Chians, who continued to send our contingents as independent and nominally free. Trust in Athens as a leader, however, we could no longer feel, judging by the examples already given. It being unlikely that she would reduce our fellow confederates, and not do the same by us who were left, if ever she had the power." had we all been still independent we could have had more faith in their not attempting any change but the greater number being their subjects while they were treating us as equals they would naturally chafe under the solitary instance of independence as contrasted with the submission of the majority particularly as they daily grew more powerful and we more destitute now the only sure basis of an alliance is for each party to be equally afraid of the other he who would like to encroach is then deterred by the reflection that he will not have odds in his favor again if we were left independent it was only because they thought they saw their way to empire more clearly by specious language and by the paths of policy than by those of force not only were we useful as evidence that powers who had votes like themselves would not surely join them in their expeditions against their will without the party attacked being in the wrong but the same system also enabled them to lead the stronger states against the weaker first, and so to leave the former to the last, stripped of their natural allies, and less capable of resistance. But if they had begun with us, while all the states still had their resources under their own control, and there was a center to rally round, the work of subjugation would have been found less easy. Besides this, our navy gave them some apprehension. It was always possible that it might unite with you, or with some other power, and become dangerous to Athens. The court which we paid to their commons and its leaders for the time being also helped us to maintain our independence. However, we did not expect to be able to do so much longer if this war had not broken out from the examples that we had had of their conduct to the rest. How then could we put our trust in such friendship or freedom as we had here? We accepted each other against our inclination. Fear made them court us in war, and us them in peace. Sympathy, the ordinary basis of confidence, had its place supplied by terror, fear having more share than friendship in detaining us in the alliance. And the first party that should be encouraged by the hope of impunity was certain to break faith with the other. So that to condemn us for being the first to break off, because they delay the blow that we dread, instead of ourselves delaying to know for certain whether it will be dealt or not, is to take a false view of the case. For if we were equally able with them to meet their plots and imitate their delay, we should be their equals and should be under no necessity of being their subjects. But the liberty of offense being always theirs, that of defense ought clearly to be ours." Such Lacedaemonians and allies are the grounds and the reasons of our revolt clear enough to convince our hearers of the fairness of our conduct and sufficient to alarm ourselves and to make us turn to some means of safety this we wished to do long ago when we sent to you on the subject while the peace yet lasted but were balked by your refusing to receive us and now upon the boeotians inviting us we at once responded to the call and decided upon a twofold revolt from the hellenists and from the athenians not to aid the latter in harming the former but to join in their liberation, and not to allow the Athenians in the end to destroy us, but to act in time against them. Our revolt, however, has taken place prematurely and without preparation, a fact which makes it all the more incumbent on you to receive us into alliance and to send us speedy relief, in order to show that you support your friends, and at the same time do harm to your enemies. You have an opportunity such as you never had before disease and expenditure have wasted the athenians their ships are either cruising round your coasts or engaged in blockading us and it is not probable that they will have any to spare if you invade them a second time this summer by sea and land but they will either offer no resistance to your vessels or withdraw from both our shores nor must it be thought that this is a case of putting yourselves into danger for a country which is not yours lesbos may appear far off but when help is wanted she will be found near enough. It is not in Attica that the war will be decided, as some imagine, but in the countries by which Attica is supported, and the Athenian revenue is drawn from the allies, and will become still larger if they reduce us, as not only will no other state revolt, but our resources will be added to theirs, and we shall be treated worse than those that were enslaved before. 
but if you will frankly support us, you will add to your side a state that has a large navy, which is your great want. You will smooth away to the overthrow of the Athenians by depriving them of their allies, who will be greatly encouraged to come over, and you will free yourselves from the imputation made against you of not supporting insurrection. In short, only show yourselves as liberators, and you may count upon having the advantage in the war. Respect, therefore, the hopes placed in you by the Hellenists, and that Olympian Zeus, in whose temple we stand as very suppliants, become the allies and defenders of the Mytilenians, and do not sacrifice us who put our lives upon the hazard, in a cause in which general good will result to all from our success, and still more general harm if we fail through your refusing to help us. But be the men that the Hellenists think you, and our fears desire." Such were the words of the Mytilenians. After hearing them out, the Lacedaemonians and Confederates granted what they urged, and took the Lesbians into alliance, and deciding in favor of the invasion of Attica, told the allies present to march as quickly as possible to the Isthmus with two-thirds of their forces, and arriving there first themselves, got ready hauling machines to carry their ships across from Corinth to the sea on the side of Athens, in order to make their attack by sea and land at once. However, the zeal which they displayed was not imitated by the rest of the Confederates, who came in but slowly, being engaged in harvesting their corn and sick of making expeditions. Meanwhile the Athenians, aware that the preparations of the enemy were due to his conviction of their weakness, and wishing to show him that he was mistaken, and that they were able, without moving the Lesbian fleet, to repel with ease that with which they were menaced from Peloponnese, manned a hundred ships by embarking the citizens of Athens, except the knights and Pentecosio Medimni, and the resident aliens, and putting out to the Isthmus, displayed their power, and made descents upon Peloponnese wherever they pleased. A disappointment so signal made the Lacedaemonians think that the Lesbians had not spoken the truth, and embarrassed by the non-appearance of the Confederates, coupled with the news that the thirty ships round Peloponnese were ravaging the lands near Sparta, they went back home. Afterwards, however, they got ready a fleet to send to Lesbos, and ordering a total of forty ships from the different cities in the league, appointed Alcadus to command the expedition in his capacity of high admiral. Meanwhile the Athenians in the hundred ships, upon seeing the Lacedaemonians go home, went home likewise. If, at the time that this fleet was at sea, Athens had almost the largest number of first-rate ships in commission that she ever possessed at any one moment, she had as many or even more when the war began. At that time one hundred guarded Attica, Euboea, and Salamis. A hundred more were cruising round Peloponnese, besides those employed at Potidea and in other places, making a grand total of two hundred and fifty vessels employed on active service in a single summer. It was this, with Potidaea, that most exhausted her revenues, Potidaea being blockaded by a force of heavy infantry, each drawing two drachmae a day, one for himself and another for his servant, which amounted to three thousand at first, and was kept at this number down to the end of the siege, besides sixteen hundred with Formio, who went away before it was over, and the ships being all paid at the same rate. In this way her money was wasted at first, and this was the largest number of ships ever manned by her. About the same time that the Lacedaemonians were at the Isthmus, the Mytilenians marched by land with their mercenaries against Methymna, which they thought to gain by treachery. After assaulting the town, and not meeting with the success that they anticipated, they withdrew to Antissa, Pyrrha, and Erisus and taking measures for the better security of these towns and strengthening their walls, hastily returned home. After their departure the Methymnians marched against Antissa, but were defeated in a sortie by the Antissians and their mercenaries, and retreated in haste after losing many of their number. Word of this reaching Athens, and the Athenians learning that the Mytilenians were masters of the country and their own soldiers unable to hold them in check, they sent out about the beginning of autumn Pachys, son of Epicurus, to take the command, and a thousand Athenian heavy infantry, who worked their own passage and, arriving at Mytilene, built a single wall all round it, forts being erected at some of the strongest points. Mytilene was thus blockaded strictly on both sides, by land and by sea, and winter now drew near. 
the athenians needing money for the siege although they had for the first time raised a contribution of two hundred talents from their own citizens now sent out twelve ships to levy subsidies from their allies with lysicles and four others in command after cruising to different places and laying them under contribution lysicles went up the country from mias in Caria, across the plain of the meander as far as the hills of sandius and being attacked by the carians and the people of anaya was slain with many of his soldiers the same winter the plataeans who were still being besieged by the peloponnesians and boeotians distressed by the failure of their provisions and seeing no hope of relief from athens nor any other means of safety formed a scheme with the athenians besieged with them for escaping if possible by forcing their way over the enemy's walls the attempt having been suggested by thyanetus son of tolmides a soothsayer and Upompides, son of Dimachus, one of their generals. At first all were to join. Afterwards half hung back, thinking the risk great. About two hundred and twenty, however, voluntarily persevered in the attempt, which was carried out in the following way. Ladders were made to match the height of the enemy's wall, which they measured by the layers of bricks, the side turned towards them not being thoroughly whitewashed these were counted by many persons at once and though some might miss the right calculation most would hit upon it particularly as they counted over and over again and were no great way from the wall but could see it easily enough for their purpose the length required for the ladders was thus obtained being calculated from the breadth of the brick now the wall of the peloponnesians was constructed as follows it consisted of two lines drawn round the place one against the plataeans the other against any attack on the outside from athens about sixteen feet apart the intermediate space of sixteen feet was occupied by huts portioned out among the soldiers on guard and built in one block so as to give the appearance of a single thick wall with battlements on either side at intervals of every ten battlements were towers of considerable size and the same breadth as the wall reaching right across from its inner to its outer face with no means of passing except through the middle accordingly on stormy and wet nights the battlements were deserted and guard kept from the towers which were not far apart and roofed in above such being the structure of the wall by which the plataeans were blockaded when their preparations were completed they waited for a stormy night of wind and rain and without any moon and then set out guided by the authors of the enterprise crossing first the ditch that ran round the town they next gained the wall of the enemy unperceived by the sentinels who did not see them in the darkness or hear them as the wind drowned with its roar the noise of their approach besides which they kept a good way off from each other that they might not be betrayed by the clash of their weapons they were also lightly equipped and had only the left foot shod to preserve them from slipping in the mire they came up to the battlements at one of the intermediate spaces where they knew them to be unguarded those who carried the ladders went first and planted them next twelve light-armed soldiers with only a dagger and a breastplate mounted led by Amias, son of corobus who was the first on the wall his followers getting up after him and going six to each of the towers after these came another party of light troops armed with spears whose shields that they might advance the easier were carried by men behind who were to hand them to them when they found themselves in presence of the enemy after a good many had mounted they were discovered by the sentinels in the towers by the noise made by a tile which was knocked down by one of the plataeans as he was laying hold of the battlements the alarm was instantly given and the troops rushed to the wall not knowing the nature of the danger owing to the dark night and stormy weather the plataeans in the town having also chosen that moment to make a sortie against the wall of the peloponnesians upon the side opposite to that on which their men were getting over in order to divert the attention of the besiegers accordingly they remained distracted at their several posts without any venturing to stir to give help from his own station and at a loss to guess what was going on meanwhile the three hundred set aside for service on emergencies went outside the wall in the direction of the alarm fire signals of an attack were also raised towards thebes but the plataeans in the town at once displayed a number of others prepared beforehand for this very purpose in order to render the enemy's signals unintelligible and to prevent his friends getting a true idea of what was passing and coming to his aid before their comrades who had gone out should have made good their escape and be in safety meanwhile the first of the scaling party that had got up after carrying both the towers and putting the sentinels to the sword 
posted themselves inside to prevent any one coming through against them, and rearing ladders from the wall sent several men up on the towers, and from their summit and base kept in check all of the enemy that came up, with their missiles, while their main body planted a number of ladders against the wall, and knocking down the battlements, passed over between the towers, each as soon as he had got over taking up his station at the edge of the ditch, and plying from thence with arrows and darts any who came along the wall to stop the passage of his comrades. When all were over, the party on the towers came down, the last of them not without difficulty, and proceeded to the ditch just as the three hundred came up carrying torches. The Plataeans, standing on the edge of the ditch in the dark, had a good view of their opponents, and discharged their arrows and darts upon the unarmed parts of their bodies, while they themselves could not be so well seen in the obscurity for the torches, and thus even the last of them got over the ditch, though not without effort and difficulty, as ice had formed in it, not strong enough to walk upon, but of that watery kind which generally comes with a wind more east than north, and the snow which this wind had caused to fall during the night had made the water in the ditch rise, so that they could scarcely breast it as they crossed. However, it was mainly the violence of the storm that enabled them to effect their escape at all. Starting from the ditch, the Plataeans went all together along the road leading to Thebes, keeping the chapel of the hero Andocrates upon their right, considering that the last road which the Peloponnesians would suspect them of having taken would be that towards their enemy's country. Indeed, they could see them pursuing with torches upon the Athens road towards Catheron, and through Oscephali, or Oakheads. After going for rather more than half a mile upon the road to Thebes, the Plataeans turned off and took that leading to the mountain, to Erythrae and Hysiae, and reaching the hills, made good their escape to Athens, two hundred and twelve men in all, some of their number having turned back into the town before getting out over the wall, and one archer having been taken prisoner at the outer ditch. Meanwhile the Peloponnesians gave up the pursuit and returned to their posts, and the Plataeans in the town, knowing nothing of what had passed, and informed by those who had turned back that not a man had escaped, sent out a herald as soon as it was day to make a truce for the recovery of the dead bodies, and then, learning the truth, desisted. In this way the Plataean party got over and were saved. Towards the close of the same winter, Salathus, a Lacedaemonian, was sent out in a galley from Lacedaemon to Mytilene. Going by sea to Pyrrha, and from thence overland, he passed along the bed of a torrent, where the line of circumvallation was passable, and thus entering unperceived into Mytilene, told the magistrates that Attica would certainly be invaded, and the forty ships destined to relieve them arrive, and that he had been sent on to announce this, and to superintend matters generally. The Mytilenians upon this took courage, and laid aside the idea of treating with the Athenians, and now this winter ended, and with it entered the fourth year of the war of which Thucydides was the historian. The next summer the Peloponnesians sent off the forty-two ships for Mytilene, under Alcides their high admiral, and themselves and their allies invaded Attica, their object being to distract the Athenians by a double movement and thus to make it less easy for them to act against the fleet sailing to Mytilene. The commander in this invasion was Cleomenes, in the place of King Pausanias, son of Pleistoanax, his nephew, who was still a minor. Not content with laying waste whatever had shot up in the parts which they had before devastated, their invaders now extended their ravages to lands passed over in their previous incursions, so that this invasion was more severely felt by the Athenians than any except the second the enemy staying on and on until they had overrun most of the country, in the expectation of hearing from Lesbos of something having been achieved by their fleet, which they thought must now have got over. However, as they did not obtain any of the results expected, and their provisions began to run short, they retreated and dispersed to their different cities. In the meantime the Mytilenians, finding their provisions failing, while the fleet from Peloponnese was loitering on the way instead of appearing at Mytilene, were compelled to come to terms with the Athenians in the following manner. Salathus, having himself ceased to expect the fleet to arrive, now armed the commons with heavy armor, which they had not before possessed, with the intention of making a sortie against the Athenians. The commons, however, no sooner found themselves possessed of arms than they refused any longer to obey their officers, and forming in knots together, told the authorities to bring out in public the provisions and divide them amongst them all, or they would themselves come to terms with the Athenians and deliver up the city. 
the government aware of their inability to prevent this and of the danger they would be in if left out of the capitulation publicly agreed with pacis and the army to surrender mytilene at discretion and to admit the troops into the town upon the understanding that the mytilenians should be allowed to send an embassy to athens to plead their cause and that pacis should not imprison make slaves of or put to death any of the citizens until its return such were the terms of the capitulation in spite of which the chief authors of the negotiation with lacedaemon were so completely overcome by terror when the army entered that they went and seated themselves by the altars from which they were raised up by pacis under promise that he would do them no wrong and lodged by him in tenedos until he should learn the pleasure of the athenians concerning them pacis also sent some galleys and seized antissa and took such other military measures as he thought advisable meanwhile the peloponnesians in the forty ships who ought to have made all haste to receive mytilene lost time in coming round peloponnese itself and proceeding leisurely on the remainder of the voyage made delos without having been seen by the athenians at athens and from thence arriving at Icarus and Mykonos, there first heard of the fall of Mytilene. Wishing to know the truth, they put into Imbatum in the Erythriad, about seven days after the capture of the town. Here they learned the truth, and began to consider what they were to do. And Tutioplos and Ilion addressed them as follows. Alcidas and Peloponnesians who share with me the command of this armament, my advice is to sail just as we are to Mytilene, before we have been heard of. We may expect to find the Athenians as much off their guard as men generally are who have just taken a city. This will certainly be so by sea, where they have no idea of any enemy attacking them, and where our strength, as it happens, mainly lies, while even their land forces are probably scattered about the houses in the carelessness of victory." If therefore we were to fall upon them suddenly and in the night, I have hopes, with the help of the well-wishers that we may have left inside the town, that we shall become masters of that place. Let us not shrink from the risk, but let us remember that this is just the occasion for one of the baseless panics common in war, and that to be able to guard against these in one's own case, and to detect the moment when an attack will find an enemy at this disadvantage, is what makes a successful general." These words of Tutiaplus failing to move Alcidas, some of the Ionian exiles and the lesbians with the expedition began to urge him, since this seemed too dangerous, to seize one of the Ionian cities or the Aeolic town of Chime, to use as a base for effecting the revolt of Ionia. This was by no means a hopeless enterprise, as their coming was welcome everywhere. Their object would be by this move to deprive Athens of her chief source of revenue, and at the same time to saddle her with expense if she chose to blockade them, and they would probably induce Pisuthnes to join them in the war. However, Alcidas gave this proposal as bad a reception as the other, being eager, since he had come too late for Mytilene, to find himself back in Peloponnese as soon as possible. Accordingly, he put out from Imbatum and proceeded along shore, and touching at the Teian town Mionessus, there butchered most of the prisoners that he had taken on his passage. Upon his coming to anchor at Ephesus, envoys came to him from the Samians at Anaya, and told him that he was not going the right way to free Hellas in massacring men who had never raised a hand against him, and who were not enemies of his, but allies of Athens against their will and that if he did not stop, he would turn many more friends into enemies than enemies into friends. Alcidas agreed to this, and let go all the Chians still in his hands, and some of the others that he had taken. The inhabitants, instead of flying at the sight of his vessels, rather coming up to them, taking them for Athenian, having no sort of expectation that while the Athenians commanded the sea, Peloponnesian ships would venture over to Ionia. From Ephesus, Alcidas set sail in haste and fled. He had been seen by the Salaminian and Paralian galleys, which happened to be sailing from Athens, while still at anchor off Claris, and fearing pursuit he now made across the open sea, fully determined to touch nowhere if he could help it, until he got to Peloponnese. Meanwhile news of him had come into Pacis from the Erythriad, and indeed from all quarters. As Ionia was unfortified, great fears were felt that the Peloponnesians coasting along shore, even if they did not intend to stay, might make descents in passing and plunder the towns. And now the Perellian and Salaminian, having seen him at Claris, themselves brought intelligence of the fact. 
Paques accordingly gave hot chase, and continued the pursuit as far as the Isle of Patmos, and then finding that Alcidas had got on too far to be overtaken, came back again. Meanwhile he thought it fortunate that, as he had not fallen in with them out at sea, he had not overtaken them anywhere where they would have been forced to encamp, and so give him the trouble of blockading them. On his return along shore he touched, among other places, at Notium, the port of Colophon, where the Colophonians had settled after the capture of the upper town by Itamenes and the barbarians, who had been called in by certain individuals in a party quarrel. The capture of the town took place about the time of the second Peloponnesian invasion of Attica. However, the refugees, after settling at Notium, again split up into factions, one of which called in Arcadian and barbarian mercenaries from Pasuthenes, and, entrenching these in a quarter apart, formed a new community with the Median party of the Colophonians, who joined them from the upper town. Their opponents had retired into exile, and now called in Pacis, who invited Hippias, the commander of the Arcadians in the fortified quarter, to a parley, upon condition that, if they could not agree, he was to be put back safe and sound in the fortification. However, upon his coming out to him, he put him into custody, though not in chains, and attacked suddenly and took by surprise the fortification, and putting the Arcadians and the barbarians found in it to the sword, afterwards took Hippias into it, as he had promised, and as soon as he was inside, seized him and shot him down. Pacis then gave up Notium to the Colophonians, not of the Median party, and settlers were afterwards set out from Athens, and the place colonized according to Athenian laws, after collecting all of the Colophonians found in any of the cities. Arrived at Mytilene, Pacis reduced Pyrrha and Erisus, and finding the Lacedaemonian Solathus in hiding in the town, sent him off to Athens, together with the Mytilenians that he had placed in Tenedos, and any other persons that he thought concerned in the revolt. He also sent back the greater part of his forces, remaining with the rest to settle Mytilene and the rest of Lesbos, as he thought best. Upon the arrival of the prisoners with Silathus, the Athenians at once put the latter to death, although he offered, among other things, to procure the withdrawal of the Peloponnesians from Plataea, which was still under siege, and after deliberating as to what they should do with the former, in the fury of the moment determined to put to death not only the prisoners at Athens, but the whole adult male population of Mytilene, and to make slaves of the women and children. It was remarked that Mytilene had revolted without being, like the rest, subjected to the empire, and what above all swelled the wrath of the Athenians was the fact of the Peloponnesian fleet having ventured over to Ionia her support, a fact which was held to argue a long-meditated rebellion. They accordingly sent a galley to communicate the decree to Pacis, commanding him to lose no time in dispatching the Mytilenians. The morrow brought repentance with it, and reflection on the horrid cruelty of a decree which condemned a whole city to the fate merited only by the guilty. This was no sooner perceived by the Mytilenian ambassadors at Athens and their Athenian supporters than they moved the authorities to put the question again to the vote, which they the more easily consented to do as they themselves plainly saw that most of the citizens wished some one to give them an opportunity for reconsidering the matter. An assembly was therefore at once called, and after much expression of opinion on both sides, Cleon, son of Cleonitus, the same who had carried the former motion of putting the Mytilenians to death, the most violent man at Athens, and at that time by far the most powerful with the commons, came forward again and spoke as follows. I have often before now been convinced that a democracy is incapable of empire, and never more so than by your present change of mind in the matter of Mytilene. Fears of plots being unknown to you in your daily relations with each other, you feel just the same with regard to your allies, and never reflect that the mistakes into which you may be led by listening to their appeals, or by giving way to your own compassion, are full of danger to yourselves, and bring you no thanks for your weakness from your allies entirely forgetting that your empire is a despotism and your subjects disaffected conspirators whose obedience is ensured not by your suicidal concessions but by the superiority given you by your own strength and not their loyalty the most alarming feature in the case is the constant change of measures with which we appear to be threatened and our seeming ignorance of the fact that bad laws which are never changed are better for a city than good ones that have no authority 
that unlearned loyalty is more serviceable than quick-witted insubordination, and that ordinary men usually manage public affairs better than their more gifted fellows. The latter are always wanting to appear wiser than the laws, and to overrule every proposition brought forward, thinking that they cannot show their wit in more important matters, and by such behavior too often ruin their country, while those who mistrust their own cleverness are content to be less learned than the laws, and less able to pick holes in the speech of a good speaker, and being fair judges rather than rival athletes, generally conduct affairs successfully. These we ought to imitate, instead of being led on by cleverness and intellectual rivalry, to advise your people against our real opinions. For myself, I adhere to my former opinion, and wonder at those who have proposed to reopen the case of the Mytilenians, and who are thus causing a delay which is all in favor of the guilty, by making the sufferer proceed against the offender with the edge of his anger blunted, although where vengeance follows most closely upon the wrong, it best equals it, and most amply requites it. I wonder also who will be the man who will maintain the contrary, and will pretend to show that the crimes of the Mytilenians are of service to us, and our misfortunes injurious to the Allies. Such a man must plainly either have such confidence in his rhetoric as to adventure to prove that what has been once for all decided is still undetermined, or be bribed to try to delude us by elaborate sophisms. In such contests the state gives the rewards to others, and takes the dangers for herself. The persons to blame are you who are so foolish as to institute these contests, who go to see an oration as you would to see a sight, take your facts on hearsay, judge of the practicability of a project by the wit of its advocates, and trust for the truth as to past events, not to the fact which you saw more than to the clever strictures which you heard, the easy victims of new-fangled arguments, unwilling to follow received conclusions, slaves to every new paradox, despisers of the commonplace, the first wish of every man being that he could speak himself, the next arrival those who can speak by seeming to be quite up with their ideas, by applauding every hit almost before it is made, and by being as quick in catching an argument as you are slow in foreseeing its consequences. Asking, if I may so say, for something different from the conditions under which we live, and yet comprehending inadequately those very conditions, very slaves to the pleasure of the ear, and more like the audience of a rhetorician than the council of a city. In order to keep you from this, I proceed to show that no one state has ever injured you as much as Mytilene. I can make allowance for those who revolt because they cannot bear our empire, or who have been forced to do so by the enemy. But for those who possessed an island with fortifications, who could fear our enemies only by sea, and there had their own force of galleys to protect them, who were independent and held in the highest honor by you, to act as these have done, this is not revolt. Revolt implies oppression. It is deliberate and wanton aggression, an attempt to ruin us by siding with our bitterest enemies, a worse offense than a war undertaken on their own account in the acquisition of power. The fate of those of their neighbors who had already rebelled and had been subdued was no lesson to them. Their own prosperity could not dissuade them from affronting danger, but blindly confident in the future, and full of hopes beyond their power, though not beyond their ambition, they declared war and made their decision to prefer might to right, their attack being determined not by provocation but by the moment which seemed propitious. The truth is that great good fortune coming suddenly and unexpectedly tends to make a people insolent. In most cases it is safer for mankind to have success in reason than out of reason, and it is easier for them, one may say, to stave off adversity than to preserve prosperity. Our mistake has been to distinguish the Mytilenians as we have done. Had they been long ago treated like the rest, they would, never would have so far forgotten themselves, human nature being as surely made arrogant by consideration as it is awed by firmness. Let them now, therefore, be punished as their crime requires, and do not, while you condemn the aristocracy, absolve the people. This is certain, that all attacked you without distinction, although they might have come over to us and been now again in possession of their city. But no. They thought it safer to throw in their lot with the aristocracy, and so joined their rebellion. Consider, therefore, 
if you subject to the same punishment the ally who is forced to rebel by the enemy and him who does so by his own free choice which of them think you is there that will not rebel upon the slightest pretext when the reward of success is freedom and the penalty of failure nothing so very terrible we meanwhile shall have to risk our money and our lives against one state after another and if successful shall receive a ruined town from which we can no longer draw the revenue upon which our strength depends while if unsuccessful we shall have an enemy the more upon our hands and shall spend the time that might be employed in combating our existing foes in warring with our own allies no hope therefore that rhetoric may instill or money purchase of the mercy due to human infirmity must be held out to the mytilenians their offence was not involuntary but of malice and deliberate and mercy is only for unwilling offenders i therefore now as before persist against your reversing your first decision or giving way to the three failings most fatal to empire pity sentiment and indulgence compassion is due to those who can reciprocate the feeling not to those who will never pity us in return but are our natural and necessary foes the orators who charm us with sentiment may find other less important arenas for their talents in the place of one where the city pays a heavy penalty for a momentary pleasure themselves receiving fine acknowledgments for their fine phrases while indulgence should be shown towards those who will be our friends in future instead of towards men who will remain just what they were and as much our enemies as before to sum up shortly i say that if you follow my advice you will do what is just towards the mytilenians and at the same time expedient while by a different decision you will not oblige them so much as pass sentence upon yourselves for if they were right in rebelling you must be wrong in ruling however if right or wrong you determine to rule you must carry out your principle and punish the mytilenians as your interest requires or else you must give up your empire and cultivate honesty without danger make up your minds therefore to give them like for like do not let the victims who escaped the plot be more insensible than the conspirators who hatched it but reflect what they would have done if victorious over you especially they were the aggressors it is they who wrong their neighbor without a cause that pursue their victim to the death on account of the danger which they foresee in letting their enemy survive since the object of a wanton wrong is more dangerous if he escape than an enemy who has not this to complain of do not therefore be traitors to yourselves but recall as nearly as possible the moment of suffering and the supreme importance which you then attach to their reduction and now pay them back in turn without yielding the present weakness or forgetting the peril that once hung over you punish them as they deserve and teach your other allies by a striking example that the penalty of a rebellion is death let them once understand this and you will not have so often to neglect your enemies while you are fighting with your own confederates such were the words of cleon after him diodotus son of eucrates who had also in the previous assembly spoken most strongly against putting the mytilenians to death came forward and spoke as follows i do not blame the persons who have reopened the case of the mytilenians nor do i approve the protests which we have heard against important questions being frequently debated i think the two things most opposed to good counsel are haste and passion haste usually goes hand in hand with folly passion with coarseness and narrowness of mind as for the argument that speech ought not to be the exponent of action the man who uses it must be either senseless or interested senseless if he believes it is possible to treat of the uncertain future through any other medium interested if wishing to carry a disgraceful measure and doubting his ability to speak well in a bad cause he thinks to frighten opponents and hearers by well-aimed calumny what is still more intolerable is to accuse a speaker of making a display in order to be paid for it if ignorance only were imputed an unsuccessful speaker might retire with a reputation for honesty if not for wisdom while the charge of dishonesty makes him suspected if successful and thought if defeated not only a fool but a rogue the city is no gainer by such a system since fear deprives it of its advisers although in truth if our speakers are to make such assertions it would be better for the country if they could not speak at all as we should then make fewer blunders 
the good citizen ought to triumph not by frightening his opponents but by beating them fairly in argument and a wise city without over-distinguishing its best advisers will nevertheless not deprive them of their due and far from punishing an unlucky counsellor will not even regard him as disgraced in this way successful orators would be least tempted to sacrifice their convictions to popularity in the hope of still higher honors and unsuccessful speakers to resort to the same popular arts in order to win over the multitude this is not our way and besides the moment that a man is suspected of giving advice however good from corrupt motives we feel such a grudge against him for the gain which after all we are not certain he will receive that we deprive the city of its certain benefit plain good advice has thus come to be no less suspected than bad and the advocate of the most monstrous measures is not more obliged to use deceit to gain the people than the best counsellor is to lie in order to be believed the city and the city only owing to these refinements can never be served openly and without disguise he who does serve it openly being always suspected of serving himself in some secret way in return still considering the magnitude of the interests involved and the position of affairs we orators must make it our business to look a little farther than you who judge off-hand especially as we your advisers are responsible while you our audience are not so for if those who gave the advice and those who took it suffered equally you would judge more calmly as it is you visit the disasters into which the whim of the moment may have led you upon the single person of your adviser not upon yourselves his numerous companions in error however i have not come forward either to oppose or to accuse in the matter of mitellini indeed the question before us as sensible men is not their guilt but our interests though i prove them ever so guilty i shall not therefore advise their death unless it be expedient nor though they should have claims to indulgence shall i recommend it unless it be dearly for the good of the country i consider that we are deliberating for the future more than for the present and where cleon is so positive as to the useful deterrent effects that will follow from making rebellion capital i who consider the interests of the future quite as much as he as positively maintain the contrary and i require you not to reject my useful considerations for his specious ones his speech may have the attraction of seeming the more just in your present temper against mitellini but we are not in a court of justice but in a political assembly and the question is not justice but how to make the mitellinians useful to athens now of course communities have enacted the penalty of death for many offences far lighter than this still hope leads men to venture and no one ever yet put himself in peril without the inward conviction that he would succeed in his design again was there ever city rebelling that did not believe that it possessed either in itself or in its alliances resources adequate to the enterprise all states and individuals are alike prone to error and there is no law that will prevent them or why should men have exhausted the list of punishments in search of enactments to protect them from evil-doers it is probable that in early times the penalties for the greatest offences were less severe and that as these were disregarded the penalty of death has been by degrees in most cases arrived at which is itself disregarded in like manner either then some means of terror more terrible than this must be discovered or it must be owned that this restraint is useless and that as long as poverty gives men the courage of necessity or plenty fills them with the ambition which belongs to insolence and pride and the other conditions of life remain each under the thraldom of some fatal and master passion so long will the impulse never be wanting to drive men into danger hope also and cupidity the one leading and the other following the one conceiving the attempt the other suggesting the facility of succeeding cause the widest ruin and although invisible agents are far stronger than the dangers that are seen fortune too powerfully helps the delusion and by the unexpected aid that she sometimes lends tempts men to venture with inferior means and this is especially the case with communities because the stakes played for are the highest freedom or empire and when all are acting together each man irrationally magnifies his own capacity in fine it is impossible to prevent and only great simplicity can hope to prevent human nature doing what it has once set its mind upon by force of law or by any other deterrent force whatsoever 
we must not therefore commit ourselves to a false policy through a belief in the efficacy of the punishment of death or exclude rebels from the hope of repentance and an early atonement of their error consider a moment at present if a city that has already revolted perceive that it cannot succeed it will come to terms while it is still able to refund expenses and pay tribute afterwards in the other case what city think you would not prepare better than it is now done and hold out to the last against its besiegers if it is all one whether it surrender late or soon and how can it be otherwise than hurtful to us to be put to the expense of a siege because surrender is out of the question and if we take the city to receive a ruined town from which we can no longer draw the revenue which forms our real strength against the enemy we must not therefore sit as strict judges of the offenders to our own prejudice but rather see how by moderate chastisements we may be enabled to benefit in future by the revenue-producing powers of our dependencies and we must make up our minds to look for our protection not to legal terrors but to careful administration at present we do exactly the opposite when a free community held in subjection by force rises as is only natural and asserts its independence it is no sooner reduced than we fancy ourselves obliged to punish it severely although the right course with freemen is not to chastise them rigorously when they do rise but rigorously to watch them before they rise and to prevent their ever entertaining the idea and the insurrection suppressed to make as few responsible for it as possible only consider what a blunder you would commit in doing as cleon recommends as things are at present in all the cities the people is your friend and either does not revolt with the oligarchy or if forced to do so becomes at once the enemy of the insurgents so that in the war with a hostile city you have the masses on your side but if you butcher the people of mytilene who had nothing to do with the revolt and who as soon as they got arms of their own motion surrendered the town first you will commit the crime of killing your benefactors and next you will play directly into the hands of the higher classes who when they induce their cities to rise will immediately have the people on their side through your having announced in advance the same punishment for those who are guilty and for those who are not on the contrary even if they were guilty you ought to seem not to notice it in order to avoid alienating the only class still friendly to us in short i consider it far more useful for the preservation of our empire voluntarily to put up with injustice than to put to death however justly those whom it is our interest to keep alive as for cleon's idea that in punishment the claims of justice and expediency can both be satisfied facts do not confirm the possibility of such a combination confess therefore that this is the wisest course and without conceding too much either to pity or to indulgence by neither of which motives do i any more than cleon wish you to be influenced upon the plain merits of the case before you be persuaded by me to try calmly those of the mytilenians whom pacchus sent off as guilty and to leave the rest undisturbed this is at once best for the future and most terrible to your enemies at the present moment inasmuch as good policy against an adversary is superior to the blind attacks of brute force such were the words of diodotus the two opinions thus expressed were the ones that most directly contradicted each other and the athenians notwithstanding their change of feeling now proceeded to a division in which the show of hands was almost equal although the motion of diodotus carried the day another galley was at once sent off in haste for fear that the first might reach lesbos in the interval and the city be found destroyed the first ship having about a day and a night start wine and barley cakes were provided for the vessel by the mytilenian ambassadors and great promises made if they arrived in time which caused the men to use such diligence upon the voyage that they took their meals of barley cakes kneaded with oil and wine as they rowed and only slept by turns while the others were at the oar luckily they met with no contrary wind and the first ship making no haste upon so horrid an errand while the second pressed on in the manner described the first arrived so little before them that pacchus had only just had time to read the decree and to prepare to execute the sentence when the second put into port and prevented the massacre the danger of mytilene had indeed been great the other party whom pacchus had sent off as the prime movers in the rebellion were upon cleon's motion put to death by the athenians the number being rather more than a thousand the athenians also demolished the walls of the mytilenians and took possession of their ships 
Afterwards, tribute was not imposed upon the lesbians, but all their land, except that of the Methymnians, was divided into three thousand allotments, three hundred of which were reserved as sacred for the gods, and the rest assigned by lot to Athenian shareholders, who were sent out to the island. With these the lesbians agreed to pay a rent of two minae a year for each allotment, and cultivated the land themselves. The Athenians also took possession of the towns on the continent belonging to the Mytilenians, which thus became for the future subject to Athens. Such were the events that took place at Lesbos. End of chapter 9